Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Looks like we made it. <laughs> well, technically we've done more than 50, but yes, our 50th yeah. mainline episode. So, yeah, we've, uh, we've officially done 50 episodes, which isn't bad for a show which essentially started off as a bonus show to the Mad Band Downright Strange Showcase or MBDS Showcase and the urge just to do something Asian cinema related and obviously through that I mean you the, you, the listeners wanted more so we start turning it from being a monthly podcast into a bi-monthly and it just continues to uh, to grow and we continue to add and develop it and build that little community over on Facebook so it's just been a real pleasure from start to finish over this last 50 episodes of and even now that we're like 50 episodes in it still feels like we barely sort of scratched the surface of what there is to cover out there. I mean, yeah I mean there's <laughs> there's a director we're talking about tonight I can't believe it's taken us 50 episodes to get to and and I'm going to talk about someone in a minute who's someone else that we haven't spoken about you know we've got we've got thousand episodes of this if we really tried <laughs> so yeah as Stephen obviously hinted out of any tonight we're going to be talking about Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai a rather legendary title for a legendary podcast milestone so it all seemed to seemed like a, a perfect sort of blending of the two there and before we obviously uh, get into that, I mean, do you want to obviously talk about what you've been watching? Yeah, so um, I've had something sitting on my to-watch pile, I guess for a year or so, um, just making sure if that actually makes sense, looking when the film was released, yeah, yeah, a year or so. Um, it's by a director, Hirokazu Koreeda, who is, I think, fairly fairly well-known in the West. Um his, his films tend to get DVD releases, probably more in the art house world than um, than anything else. And I picked up his film The Third Murder, which is a, I guess it's a, a bit of a sort of crime investigation stroke courtroom thriller. Um, although thriller's pushing it a bit. Um, <laughs> it stars um, Masaharu Fukuyama, who I know as... Um, there's uh, the scientist uh, known as Galileo in the Galileo TV series and spin-off movies. Um, very popular singer and actor in Japan. Um, he's a he's a defence attorney in in Japan, and he takes on the case of this guy called Misumi, who's played by Koji Yakusho, who listens to the show will know as the lead character in World of uh, and oh god, what's the film called that I hated? Kanako, is that it? 
Yeah. Yes. World, World of Kanaka. So he, he's the lead in that. He's also the lead in a lot of other um, Kiroshi Kurosawa movies. You know, he's he's basically the two top guys of of Japanese modern Japanese cinema. Anyway, this fella, um, he's he's an ex prisoner. He committed a murder thirty years ago. Um, and he's been accused of, of another murder. And when I say accused, we see him do it in the first scene of the film. So this is <laughs> Columbo style, no spoilers. However, what makes it kind of complicated is every time anyone talks to him, he changes his story. Um, and as uh, the, the, the attorney, Shigemori, investigates it more, it goes from a case of absolute certainty that this guy is a murderer and that's because this is his second murder there's no way he's going to avoid the death penalty and that's another part of it it's one of the few countries in the world still to have an active death penalty um and it it's a kind of investigation into the japanese legal system um and sort of the death penalty you know is is is, is that a thing that as a as a modern world we, we should be doing to others and obviously the third murder of the title will be the the state's murder of this of this guy it's very much a it's quite a sterile film there's there's, there's a bit of investigation and walking around and talking to people going on and then the second half of the film is in the is in the courthouse so you can imagine it, it, it's kind of dry um but powerhouse acting on on both sides really sort of interesting questions are raised about about the Japanese legal system. Um, again, I think I've spoken about other films before that sort of talk about this. It's not a very Hirokazu Koreeda type film. It's not like any of his other films are more sort of social dramas. Um, this 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 is much a much sort of high concept um, thing to talk about. It's a couple of hours long. Um, it's really really good. Sorry, I've been I've been battling uh, on. Um, really good. There's a uh, Arrow Films put it out couple of years ago under their arrow academy label so people should be able to pick it up quite easily um and just really good to see you know what one, one of the modern great directors which i hinted at someone else we just haven't talked about um so far and um to see two of the two of the best most popular i think the most important thing actors in japan having 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 a, a face-to-face off um so yeah that's what i've been watching Fantastic. Um, as for myself, it has been a little bit of uh, film pickings, and I've got things lined up already. I mean, obviously, at the moment, I'm sort of mainly been hanging around the BFI, who are currently holding the Japan 2020 season. Um, at the moment, they've rolling out on a month by month basis, so each month they're adding a little bit more. So the main focus of this month, as we're recording, is our man of the episode, Akira Kurosawa. So they've uploaded a whole host of his his most popular work, I would say. It's not his most deepest work, even though you can find uh, High and Low on there, as amongst the uh, the usual suspects. I mean, obviously Seven Samurais on there, Hidden Fortress, Jimbo, Ran, um, Tenjiro, and uh, Yajimbo. So, oh usual sort of uh, bits and pieces on there and it would kind of be nice to have seen something like i don't know something like uh, keijimusha which is obviously when we did our first uh top 50 asian cinema was certainly a, a title on my own list and one that never seems to really get mentioned which is always a little frustrating uh but definitely there's quite a few films that i'm planning to sort of catch up with over the uh, next coming weeks um, and there's other bits and pieces on there as well, which are obviously filtered through. Um, 
including um, Shinto Suzuki's You for the Beast, which is another one which is on my pile of, that I keep saying I'm going to watch but never seem to get around to for some reason. To uh, revisit though, um, and this was for the Feminine Critique, who have uh, currently been working their way through the Masters of Horror series, and uh, they came to the end of season one, and it obviously ends with Imprint, which was Takashi Miike's contribution to the project, and uh episode deemed so shocking by Showtime, they actually banned the episode, and the only other director to receive that sort of uh, criticism from a project where the directors were essentially told they were going to have complete freedom to do what they want was um, Dario Argento, who received about five seconds of cuts to his episode Jennifer because it featured scenes of penis chomping, which will make more sense if you've actually seen the episode. And if you haven't, go uh, check it out because Master of Horror was a, a fun project bringing together some classic directors, you know, like John Carpenter and John Landis and uh, Joe Dante. And just giving them a chance to just make short horror films and with uh Takashi Miike's uh, one it's certainly different and I think their first problem was saying to someone like Takashi Miike you have complete freedom to do what you want because I don't think they really sort of banked on what that would really mean when you put give uh, Takashi Miike such a stupid idea and I mean, we've obviously talked about this episode before, and I mean, this along with uh, Box, which we saw in the Three Extremes trilogy, just marked the end of the outlaw period for Mike, and it just sort of... From here, we obviously went on to become a lot more sort of mainstream, doing things like 13 Assassins, and um, more recently, First Love. So it's kind of interesting to go back and, and see him when it when he was like doing the really sort of extreme stuff and I mean Imprint is certainly an example of that um, it's just a shame it's not the best example of Mike's work especially for what would would be for many people like their first sort of uh, taste of Mike because they probably all heard of Audition but haven't watched it but this would be like uh, something that they would all get to see and it's I don't think it's a, a really good representation of his work even his most extreme work I feel it's a little clumsy and it didn't benefit from having additional editing to it as well, but um, it's certainly an experience, to say the least. I mean, have you seen Mikay's episode of Masters of Horror? Yeah, I've seen all the Masters of Horrors. Um, certainly two seasons of it. I think there was just two seasons, wasn't there? And, and uh, Three seasons, because uh, the third season was called Fear... Uh, uh, I think it was called Fear Itself. Maybe I haven't seen the third season, but I've certainly seen Imprint, obviously. And yeah, it it belongs in a special little set along with audition, along with um, is it box? Is that what it's called? The one in three extremes? Yeah, box. Yeah, box. And 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 this are very much a. I mean, they are the three until fairly recently. Mika's only real forays into into proper J horror, shall we call it? Um, you know, he he did he did do um he did do one more recently, um but but he, you know he, he he his his journeys into the extreme aren't usually in the horror genre. Um, although this was this is still seven years after um, uh, audition, but I guess audition sort of took a while to percolate into the consciousness and and to become part of that Mick Garris's gang. <laughs> Just, um, it, it, yeah, because I mean, he did like obviously like Isha the Killer, which again sort of like right at the end of that that mm. outlaw period. And I mean, that's it, I think that's more of a Yakuza movie than a, a horror movie. It, 
Oh, absolutely. I, I absolutely put that in in the um, in the Yakuza movie um, uh, group. Um, I'm just trying to think what the film he did that was um, the only the only other proper horror movie he did. Um, uh, and one now I'm going to have to buy time. So. Oh uh, yeah, I forgot about one missed call. Sorry, two <laughs> others then. So he also did one missed call, which is you know, which is that's got to be a work for hire. <laughs> um, uh, very much coming off the um, the ring yeah. um, phenomenon. Um, but it, it, it's fine. Um, ironically, though, the main actress in one was called yeah over your dead body i knew it was called that and i was i was doubting myself which um he made well now it's six years ago um but also stars um ko shibasaki who's the lead in um one missed call but that's a that's more of a supernatural film than a horror film if that makes sense a very um very stagey thing i really i really like it but if you think of the hundred plus films he's made and we get three features part of a triptych add a tv entry hmm. um <laughs> that's not really big which is interesting because i think most people you know even now even if even even after all the hard work we've done elwood i think people still consider him a, a, a someone who works in the horror genre and I, and i think he does horrible things <laughs> but but Pure, pure horror is that's not what and he does. It's, it's funny, really, that um, he's got this sort of like legacy of, of working in horror because he openly admits he doesn't like horror films and that when he goes to see him, he has to like cover his face because <laughs> he doesn't want to <laughs> him in. And the making of so, what so why was he in hostel? Uh, he's in hostel because <laughs> Eli Roth asked him to. Um, because oh, Eli Roth is like, oh, isn't it gonna be edgy? We're gonna have like have this extreme director man. He did audition because I think Eli Roth thinks that that yeah. BK is a horror director, but he's not. He just yeah. I mean, this is something that made me laugh, especially when I was watching the making of um for for the episode imprint, and he's his special effects guy who's really been with him since uh, Full Metal Yakuza. Uh, basically says that Miki, when it comes to asking for props, he doesn't really have a lot of ideas. He just asks for things. And so we make a lot of severed heads and, <laughs> and bloody entrails and things here. But um, And he also says that it's like, yeah, Miki's made a lot of Yakuza movies. A lot of Yakuza movies. <laughs> so, which is really true when you look at his filmography. And, and, and still is. And still is. You know, if you look at First Love... That's a, that's oh, a it definitely is. Movie. And the fact he only um, calls it first love to make it more bankable. <laughs> or, or somebody does, yeah. Um, yeah, a bit of an average film, that one. But yeah, it's, he, he's, he's... And also, he makes children's films, and he makes romantic comedies, and he makes musicals, and, you know, he's probably made more children's films than he's made horror movies. It's just I just find it fascinating. But yeah, imp- Imprint is fine. It's, but it's not even the best thing in that season of Masters of Horror, um, and I'm not sure it's a fantastic entry point into his career. It, I mean, this is again the problem when you when you look at Mike's filmography. It's like, where do you you stop? What's the sort of like good sort of entry point to it? I mean, obviously, auditions a good one to start with. It's pretty light, apart from the ending, but at the same time, it's also very slow burn. Um, and it's very yeah, very atypical for his work as you know, you know the, the 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 prototype episode for this show. We you know that's what we talked about was audition yes. and um, and dumplings, and 
and I think you know, if you go back all those years, back to when we were young and fit and our hair wasn't grey, um, it, it, it was very much uh, this, you know, I think we said at the time, this is not in, indicative of the, of the fellow's work. Um, what it is indicative, though, of course, is his ability to adapt other people's material, which I think is his strongest talent. You know, he, he can take other people's novels, other people's films. If you look at The Happiness of Katakuris, which is a, which is obviously a remake of, of the of Jim Ki Woon's um, uh, Quiet Family, um, the computer game adaptations, which I keep going on about because I just think they're amazing. Things like um, what's the one where he does the, the Saturday oh, morning Yataman. TV show? He did Yataman. Yataman and he also you know, did Ace um, Attorney. Ace Attorney is really good as well, and. It's the most literal adaptation of a video game I've ever seen, that's for sure. You know, he he plays to the fan service every time. Um, Some of them aren't successful, some of his films are crap, and and, and luckily, in and amongst the the, the hundred plus films he's made, there's there's still little little curiosities in there, like the Bird People of China, which is like one of my favourite films of all time. But you'd be challenged to look at that and say, that's a that's a Takashi mm, Miike film, wouldn't it? I mean, I, this is I, this is one of the main reasons I wanted I wanted to do that particular episode of um, when they, when they were obviously talking about doing it. It's I put said to him, you know, I'd really like to talk about imprint mainly because they, we have no way to really sort of work it into our own schedule. But it was something I was interested to revisit and have some say on it. And if only to be to sort of like you know say that give people more of an insight into the Mickey mindset because I think while he's sort of like known unless you're sort of like into Asian cinema you probably don't know exactly what he's all about you probably just heard like the the myths and the uh the hype surrounding what Mickey is and it's sort of like what Ishii the killer is and just more sort of like the gory sort of highlights and hear about the other stuff that he does um and I mean as I said also the fact he's a uh, hundred plus film legacy and the fact he directs in some years seven to eight movies at the same time it's it's just an absolute uh well a legend really <laughs> certainly one way of putting it it's just uh he's, he's like some filmmaking prototype you know too rare for extinction too unique for mass production <laughs> I mean, you can obviously go and check check that out uh, Often the Feminine Critique. I will apologise, my audio wasn't the best on that episode because I was having to work with a headset mic and uh, it's a little briefy. But uh, hopefully the points uh, make up for it on there. So that's been my main sort of watch, uh, watch there. And it's also interesting to know that the author of Imprint still appears as the Madam of the Brothel. Um, and it also reminded me that Billy uh, Drago can't act. <laughs> as he turns up as an American journalist, yet he seems to be playing a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen it, oh. but yeah, the well, you're in for a treat. Then. <laughs> yeah, um, like I say, it's it's not my. I think it's really exciting that he was invited to be part of it. Yeah, um, I, I think he's miscast. If you know what I mean, you know, he's not really a master of horror at all. Um, but that's a fantastic show, um, and there's some really fantastic episodes, other than Imprint, um, and it's yeah, it's, it's notoriety probably is a little um, undeserved. Yes, uh, just a bit. So. I not only have a huge to watch pile of movies and TV shows and computer games, 
I also have a huge to read pile as well. <laughs> and um, I took the opportunity to, to catch up on a little bit of my reading. Um, I've spoken before about the author Kigo Higashino, probably when we talked about Devotion of Suspect X. Perfect number, that was the Korean version, but the, obviously the, the, the Japanese was the... He wrote the novel Devotion of Suspect X, and he's written a... He's, he's the big mystery thriller writer of Japan. Um, not too much of his stuff gets um, translated into English, unfortunately. Um, a handful of his books. And lots of them have been turned into TV shows and into movies. Um... Let me think what movies other than uh, Perfect Number and Suspect X. So there was a um, Himitsu, um, The Lakeside Murder Case, which is a film we must go and talk about, Into the White Knight, um, Wings of the Kirin. Uh, there's a whole bunch of and they're still doing them. And in fact, there's, the next thing I'm going to watch, Parallel World Love Story, is, is, is based on one of his novels. Um, so... Um, Last year, I think, another one of his novels was finally translated into English. I'd pre-ordered it, turned up on my Kindle, hadn't even thought about it. Anyway, read it the other day. It's called Newcomer. What I realised about halfway through is I knew everything that was going to happen, mm. which made me realise <laughs> Newcomer is... Um, I'd, I'd seen that I'd watched a TV show of this many years ago, a Japanese TV show called um, Shinzan Mono, and it stars Hiroshi Abe. Uh, from Therme, Rome, and all sorts of... I, th- I can't think if we've come across Hiroshi Abe before. We must have done. Um, basically, it's a te- detective story. He's a bit of a Columbo type, bit of a maverick. Who's, but his, his, his thing is that he sort of sits there and talks to people and gets them to drop their guard, and, and no, no clue is too small for him to follow up. And Newcomers, really, it's, it's a really interesting novel because it, it takes lots of little vignettes and each chapter is a separate little story and it's a little mystery in and of itself and what he does is by solving the little mysteries the, the, the people mysteries on the whole he gets to solve a murder um which then made me go and watch um there were some spin-offs to shin um shinzamono the tv series um the ties that bind which was a film out a couple of years ago um wings of the kirin which i mentioned a little while ago both really good sort of they're more TV movie than cinema movie, I have to say. But there's there's a whole all based around this 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 same detective um, fella. And I did pick up one of the TV movies, um, one of the spin-offs of it. Um, uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's called Akayubi, um, the Red Fingers. Again, it's it's fine. It's the equivalent of watching an episode of Columbo on a Sunday afternoon. Um, not fantastic uh, production values. It's fine. Just looks like it was shot on video, like every other Japanese TV show. <laughs> and um, but some nice performances, um, a bit overwrought. But yeah, it was entertaining. But it was just interesting that I, I was halfway through the book before I realised <laughs> I know this story. <laughs> why, why do I know it so well? It was something I'd watched maybe ten years ago, and it all came out and, and dragged me off to that. But yeah, um, Diego Higashino, he, he has a few novels in English, and so if you, and they're all quite in the mystery genre, although some of them are a bit weirder than others, like um, the novel where a child seems to be inhabited by the spirit of his dead mother, which was made into a film, um, which is a bit odd, but, but his, his Galileo stories and his, and his um, detective cargo stories are well worth checking out if you like a bit of crime fiction so probably more one for your wife Elwood than you I think yeah but uh, I would certainly mention it to her I mean she's picky as all hell about the cases that she reads I mean she did try to read um, Murakami's Underground about the sewing gas attack 
Um, but yeah, yeah, but the I owl, don't think yeah. I'm not sure if either Murakami's writing style didn't sit with there or just the the case itself. It wasn't was lost now, but um, I certainly passed it, that across. And I know that I don't. I I I didn't right. like Underground either. So Underground is that is a, yes. is a non-fiction piece. Um, and I I struggled to I struggled to keep it all together. I didn't I didn't feel although he has written some really good non-fiction pieces like you know what I think about when I'm running. He's a big marathon runner and and he wrote he wrote, he wrote a short novella I suppose or what's the what's what's a long story but it's yeah, not a novella. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's kind of a kind of novella around. Um, about you know what, what he thinks about when he goes in his long runs, which is really good. So he has he has got that, but yeah, underground is no Norwegian Wood or uh, Sputnik Sweetheart, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess you're almost more into the true crime mm. than the uh, than the crime novel. But yeah, very anything by um, Kiyoko Higashino is worth reading. It, it, it's well translated, and um, it's just a shame it's so piecemeal what gets yeah. adapted. It's always the third novel in a series or something like that. <laughs> Well, apparently we got an adaptation of the uh, book Tokyo Vice coming up soon on one of the streaming platforms, oh, yeah. um, which is by one of um, uh, by a guy who was over in Japan and he was working as a as a newspaper crime story reporter. Um, so that'd be interesting to see when that that obviously comes out. And I mean, we obviously, as of the time of recording, uh, we've just seen Snowpiercer hit Netflix here in the UK, so. Uh, that ties in very nicely with the fact that we can now actually get Snowpiercer on DVD here in the UK, finally. It's only taken, what, eight years or so, but we finally can uh, get, you can finally get your hands on a physical copy of the the film, which um, both Tilda Swindon and Ned Harris have been very, they gave a statement to The Independent today, um, saying about how happy they are, and Tilda Swindon in particular thinks that like now's like the right time for people to discover it, especially off the back of Parasite. Um, Oscar win that Bong Juno has now got this new audience that um, can come to it and sort of appreciate it even more than perhaps he would have got from just the audience he had from you know his films like you know Mother and Host and Memories of Murder. Um, I think Parasite sort of pushed him to a whole nother level, really. If only, if only we had a show about Snowpiercer, Elwood. I know we should tie really, into it. <laughs> we should really put something together, and you know, get a, a real classy guest host yeah. to come on and help us discuss it in a nice long form format, and we just sort of like delve into the ins and outs of it, and just like uh, fully break it down because there's a lot to unpack in that film, and I think it's one that is. While it's an English language film, I think that it's definitely one that still falls within our remit. I mean, obviously it's Bong Juno, um, popular name certainly on this show, and I think it would be one certainly worth exploring further. Watch this space, everybody. <laughs> In rather sad news, um, social media trolls have uh, once again struck again, and sadly it's uh, led to the sad passing of Hannah Kimura, the wrestler and Terrace House cast member who's sadly passed away at the age of only 22, uh, which is a very sad loss, both for fans of Terrace House and certainly for fans of uh, Stardom Wrestling, where she was certainly an up-and-coming name, if not one of their big names on their roster. So it's kind of sad that the toxic community of social media has pushed someone to the point where they they feel that uh, feel such sort of desperation, really. But it's uh, our thoughts are certainly with uh, Kimura's family and, and uh, her fans and 
certainly it's a it's, it was very sad news hearing that so and plays to the interest people have in terrace house i suspect in particular because that 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 news story was high up on the bbc website you know the main uk bbc website um and 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 just i I can't believe that 10 years ago you know the sad passing of a of a young japanese wrestler would have even featured in the in in the cultural tapestry of 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 the western world i don't think that it um certainly would have certainly we didn't have the attention on Japanese wrestling that we do now. I mean, just wrestling globally, it's a completely different scene than it was now, thanks to you know the internet and various streaming platforms. Which mean now that it's no longer just you know WWE and and WCW. It's now you've obviously got WWE, and then you've got the sort of second tier ones like uh, AEW and TNA and Ring of Honor, and then you've got all the indie federations out there who perhaps don't have. TV deals yet host like streaming uh, shows through the various streaming platforms or just pay-per-view events. It's a whole host of um, talent out there that people are getting to discover. And I mean, certainly when it uh, Japanese wrestling is really at the front, and certainly with stardom, they sort of really elevated the profile of Joshi wrestling as well. So it's just a very it, it was just very sad news to hear that uh, that she'd obviously chosen to take her, her life and really at, at just such a young age as well and it was such a very minor thing that these fans were getting obsessed about because of uh, a supposedly scripted incident that happened on Terrace House where um, she got into an argument with another cast me- member and they basically as social media does blew it completely out of proportion so Yes, and and obviously in the um, in the Asian world, they're a long way ahead of us in in trolling and the the power of the netizen. Um, you know, obviously in my dark tales of Asian cinema, you'll have, you'll have heard me talk a lot about how the internet world gets on the back of of famous people um, far worse than they do here in 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 the West. I think. Um, it's actually a there's, a there's quite an interesting I think it's a Korean movie called Social Phobia, which um, which uses that in, in a smaller way, but sort of sh- shows the power of of the netizens as as they're called in South Korea, um, and obviously it's the same in Japan and China where where it's a it's it's a very critical, swarmy mass of a voice that can really ruin somebody because so many people. Possibly not people your your age and my age, mate. That, but you know, their, their social media presence. No, is, it's uh, it's not. It, and sadly, I don't think that this is going to be the last. But uh, certainly, on a more positive uh, note, to sort of wrap up the the news that's been, um, we stumbled across a rather unique piece of footage this week, um, featuring well-known Hong Kong actor, bear dare I say, legend, performing his version of an Elton John song. Uh, if you were on our Facebook page, you would, of course, have seen Chow Yun-Fat doing his duet to Elton John's... Um... <laughs> um, singing, but boy, was he, he did he seem to be having fun singing it. <laughs> Don't go breaking my heart. <laughs> oh... Yeah, he, he he's really um <laughs> he's enjoying himself. I mean we talk a lot about Hong Kong stars in particular being 
you know that they're, they're, they're rarely just actors they're often <laughs> tv stars and cooks and and singers and, and writers and you know they're, they're, they're very multi um multimedia oriented um i'm pretty certain that chow yon has done oh, albums clarinet. and things <laughs> in fact is does he not is he does he not play a musical instrument quite well and that's why it's in that john woo film um does he not play the saxophone or something anyway i thought he played i thought he played some kind of brass or woodwind instrument yeah and 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 he he has managed to finagle it into into certain roles but yeah he can't sing he can't dance but you know it's obviously on some kind of variety show and he's having fun and um yeah lots of people like that clip (laughs) certainly went down very popular on the facebook page when um when when we put it up with comments such as a treasure and this has made my day and i'm now off to watch hard boiled Yeah, no, it was it was a nice little thing. I imagine we could find quite a lot of those clips if we hunted hunted around Weibo and the YouTube and the like. Um, it was just the strangest thing because, like, the day before we had the Buddhist monk performing Yellow Submarine, and I thought, <laughs> oh, that's that's pretty cool. And then the very next day, it's like, oh, guys, I found Chayun Fat singing Elton John. <laughs> yeah, which no, is was... something I didn't know I needed in my life till I saw that. And, and that's exactly that's exactly how I felt. And and, and in the current world, the time of recording, you know, we've all been stuck at home for nine, ten weeks now. Um, <laughs> this is what passes entertainment now. Well, I think it would have passed entertainment any time, but it certainly put a smile on my face. And I'm 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 a I'm a hard audience to please. Breaking my heart I couldn't have tried Oh honey when I get restless Baby another time Don't go breaking my heart Take the way of me Oh honey when you lock on my door Turn to check out Akira Kurosawa's 1954 epic samurai drama Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai is, uh, as we said already, is a 1954 Japanese epic samurai drama, co-written, edited, and directed by the legendary Akira Kurosawa, taking place during the Sengoku period. As a group of farmers find themselves being harassed by a roaming pack of bandits, and decide that rather than just hand over their barley that the bandits want so are keen to take from them they're going to hire samurai to come and defend their village and in doing so they hire seven ronin samurai to combat the 
combat the ba- the bandits when they return to steal the harvest. Now, this is a film which has been released many times before and is now finally available in its rather lengthy um, director's cut, which is a I mean, how long is this doing? It's a it's a just a mere three and a half hours. It's three three and a half hours and as i've probably said before in my view a perfect film is 90 minutes to two hours tops um luckily though this is from a time where we have intermissions and certainly in the version of the film i own they keep the five minute intermission in place which enabled me to both empty my old man bladder and get some feeling back in my buttocks again but that's not to that's nowhere criticism it's just a long yeah film. certainly on the bfi cut as well uh, if you watch this on the bfi player they also keep the intermission as well and i think it also provides an, a handy way of obviously discussing this film as it's broken into both parts one and part two so First off, though, I mean, this is a highly influential film. It's seen as being the laying the foundation for so much action cinema. It was remade for American audiences as both the uh, Magnificent Seven, uh, which obviously spawned its uh, three sequels. And was remade as A Bug's Life and was remade oh, as forget. Battle Beyond the Stars. And was, you know, it's it's um, both in terms of its its overarching plot and various scenes and just a, the whole getting the gang together kind of movie yeah. started here this 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 film you know, it's not it's not only lauded by critics but filmmakers you know um didn't steven spielberg say it's one of the four films he always watches before embarking on a new project i think it was steven spielberg who said certainly that certainly spielberg's a fan uh mainly because it features shiro mifune who he um, mm-hmm. also provides commentary for in the the documentary on mifune's career um Certainly, George Lucas is a big fan of um, Kurosawa's work, as is uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Yes, and we know that they could basically owe their careers to them. <laughs> big fan, big fan. <laughs> yeah, let's let's rewrite. Let's just redo all the film. But I, to be fair, I think Lucas is fairly open open about this. You know, Star Wars is a remake of The Hidden Fortress. Um, and he takes whole scenes. In fact, the thing that winds me up most about Star Wars is um, Lucas's obsessive use of wipes, horizontal wipes from from right to left. And of course, what does Kurosawa do in this film all the time? <laughs> Kurosawa uh, does love a, a, a good wipe, that's for sure. He, he does. So, so Luke, Lucas is very inspired by him. So, and 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 as you've said before, obviously Kurosawa is incredibly um, influenced by Western filmmaking, um, particularly that of John yes. Ford. So you know it it, it 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 works both ways, and and actually that was a that was a problem for Kurosawa in, in some of early bits of his career because many of the people, many of his producers and studios that he worked for, thought he was too Western in his approaches. So that that that's kind of interesting. Certainly, so I mean, he cited, often cited the Wanderers as uh, sorry, the Searchers as being one of his all-time favorites. I mean, he was so such a big fan of uh, John Ford to the point that he also wore sunglasses. The fact that Ford wore sunglasses because he was blind as a bat has nothing to do with it, but um, Kurosawa saw his, his way of imitating this man that he's working in mind so much, and I mean, as a director, he's directed over 30 films over a career of 57 years and is often regarded as one of the most important and influential filmmakers, not in the history of Asian cinema, but to cinema in, as a whole. Um, his 
certainly a, a very different level to any of the other directors that we've we've seen before, even the likes of uh, Shinji Suzuki. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it wouldn't be too far to say that you know the the, the two most highly regarded Japanese film directors of all time are Kurosawa and Ozu, and indeed Ozu helped Kurosawa's career, you know, helped fight the good fight for him to be allowed to to work the way he wanted to, which is something I'll talk about later. But yeah, you know, he's he's incredibly influential, and this is his, I would say, this is his magnum opus. I think definitely that's fair to so, say. Um, especially now it's finally been released complete in its complete version. Uh, because for years, I mean, it was was uh, you had, you got about half the film that was like floating around, and that was the cut that we have. And then in recent years, we've obviously got the full director's cut. As he's obviously become film historians have really recognised the talent, what he's obviously brought to cinema. So they've sort of strived as to make sure that the cuts that have been preserved are like the full cuts of his films. And yeah. I mean, when it was released in the states. Um... Because he'd had some success with Rashomon previously, so that had got him known to to the to a Western Western audience, and, and it had done well theatrically. Um, but they thought all well, three and a half hours, so they cut an entire hour out. But it's still two and a half hours, and still a lot of contemporary reviews at the time complained about its length. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just thinking, you guys have no idea what you're doing. But um, yeah, um, and this, this was a huge... And interestingly, its title, when first released in the States, was The Magnificent Seven. So, so they didn't go that far when they remade it. I mean, it's even after his sort of, like, his sort of, like, heyday of his career, he still makes, like, really interesting films. I mean, he works on Tora Tora Tora. He goes and does the script for Runaway Train, which is his second adaptation of King Lear, Ran obviously being the first. Mm. Uh, so... As a director, he's very... He's got a fascinating filmography to go into. Um, and one that is actually surprisingly accessible. Because normally when we talk about directors of his sort of status and stature, and certainly ones that are so highly regarded by critics, their work is often not the most accessible, especially in terms of Asian cinema. I mean, I would say, like, while Uzu is certainly a very masterful director, I find his work a lot harder to get into than like Kurosawa's. Kurosawa's has got a very sort of um, modern yeah. take on it, even for the year, even though, I mean, this film's made in 54, but it still feels like it's got many of like the beats and the pacing of a modern action film, even though this one's running for three and a half hours. But. Oh, absolutely. I mean, o o Ozu's a social dramatist, and and, and although the, you know, there's the old film, the film studies people can talk about his 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 technical side of things. The, the the films are very much for a Japanese audience, so they're talking about Japanese families and and things like that, which which don't necessarily play well to the the casual Westerner. This this is a Western by <laughs> any other name, isn't it? It's um and and. Yes, there's some stuff. I'll, I'll I'll do the professor stuff about it in a minute, um, to to put it into some context. But this this you know his, his films are very accessible, even though there's Japanese people and samurais and movies. They're period films, um, which which shouldn't be that easy for us to understand. But because of the way that Kurosawa directs and edits, it's a very Western sensibility, and 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 we get it. And I guess that leads to his, um, his, his, you know, his constant popularity across the length of his career. 
you know um a- anything he did sort of post 1950 up to his death is is pretty much highly regarded and and most of those films appear on people's best of lists not just of not just of asian or japanese film but of film so who are we to argue <laughs> definitely so and i mean it's also interesting when you compare it to other sort of like samurai films of this ilk i mean these aren't these are samurai speaking in almost a very modern tongue here and it's also no way for lacking any sort of like the philosophical musings which tend to hamper the other sort of samurai efforts of this genre uh so it's kind of in many ways like this film in particular is kind of like that middle ground between the art sort the arty sort of stuff you know like sort of doom and and whatnot and then the pop samurai stuff that we love so much like the baby cut in peril and lady snowblood it's, yeah this is like somewhere in the middle it's got the art house qualities to it and at the same time it's got the satisfying action there's a reason to for it. that there's a reason this film is is how it is so i've done some i've done some reading which is pretty rare for me on this normally i just play it off the cuff so this is made in what well this was released in 54 but i think it took him over a year to make so so like I say, I think I think Russian one was 1950, and there's another film in between. So any anyway, what we have to remember is: Do you remember World War Two? No, I don't. But you know, we're, we're aware of it. So so, so during um, World War Two and and that era of Japanese imperialism, the 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 emperor, the government, whatever you want to say basically co-opted the film industry into making propaganda films and um kurosawa was part of that i mean it's not what he wanted to make but but the films he was being asked to make were very much um with a propaganda belt bent and he was making um jidageki movies but the samurai and, and, and Chambara films, the sort of the sword fighting films, the, the samurai films of the time that they're being asked to make, were very much around those themes of um, of, of sacrifice and you know and and seppuku, so the 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 harikiri, all, all all that kind of stuff. You know, if you if yeah. you if you if you fail to fight for your country, you must take your life and things like that, which is the messages that were being sent out to the people and the and the soldiers of of the imperial army during the war. Then obviously the Japanese lost the war, but then they were occupied by Americans, and they had their whole culture uprooted and changed and westernized and influenced, not just in terms of cinema, but in terms of um, you know music and economics and, and all kinds of things. But the the Americans banned sword fighting films and anything with a with a feudal aspect to it obviously which the whole samurai thing the samurais were basically the sort of the, the enforcers for the feudal classes um so they weren't able to make films like that so, so we've got both this uh, this previous imperial government that using them for propaganda and we have the americans are banning it that ban was lifted in 52 and this is kurosawa's reaction to it and this isn't like the samurai films that we have seen before because this is really a parable about the modern day um and then what will happen is later on you're able to get the more pop samurai you know you're able then to use samurai films and samurai characters in a more pure period drama or as a a fun action film or, or you know we've 
we've talked about lone wolf and cub haven't we in the past um i talked about samurai the other day um but they they all come from a place politically and cinematically in japan that they couldn't have been made before and, and that's the other thing that's important about this and this is why it was so successful in japan because it was it was it was saying things that couldn't be said before i.e the government are shit and they'd be making you do shit things and these samurai fellas you know they're the equivalent of the army and and they, they've, they've kind of ruined our lives over the last 15 years there you go there's the professorship done yep. <laughs> okay so i mean kurosawa originally wanted the film to be about a single day in the life of a samurai and over the course of his research he found out found out about the story about samurai defending farmers and that formed the basis of of what the film would be become and originally it was going to be called six samurai and mifune was going to play the role of kaizo and during the the six week weeks of script writing, they basically realized that, you know, if they were to shoot it the way that samurai movies were traditionally shot, you know, a very sort of sober affair, then it was going to be an absolute bore and nobody was going to want it. And as a result that he realized that he wanted to make it so the samurai character was a little more off the wall. And in doing so, he recast Mufune as Kuchiro and basically said, you know, do what you want. You have creative license and you can just improvise all you want. And I think that really comes across in the film because he's probably nuts, nuttier than a box of frogs throughout this film. I mean, Mifune is, is just fantastic in this movie. Um, I mean, he's he's one of the great actors ever of, of, of Japanese cinema. I mean, he'd worked with Kurosawa 15 times in total. So Kurosawa was clearly a fan. But yeah, he's um, he's... There are a lot of characters in this, not just the seven samurai, but there's a whole bunch of villagers and bandits, and you know, there's there's a lot of moving pieces here, and and you know, and rightly a lot of characters do get a lot of time, and there's other characters with stories, but the one sort of spark of life throughout both halves of this film are, is is Mifune's character. I mean, he's a, he's, he does mental crazy things, but he's also the spirit of it. He's also the one that's that's pulling together the villagers and the samurai the old and the new the working class and the art and, and, the, and the fighting class um he's just he's just fabulous and you know and for three and a half hours you need someone like that to to stop it being a bit dour really um and, and this film is full of you know it's a lot of people die in this film and there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of you know poverty and all sorts of sad subjects and and his backstory of course is, is quite sad but you know he is he is the light of the film he is the driving force he's the character that we connect with the most i think oh definitely so i mean he's there for largely the comic relief he's sort of like just so full of life and enthusiasm um and just and just pure loyalty to his fellow samurais and and the task that they've essentially been assigned and it's also i mean this is also a character who spends a great deal of the battle scenes running around in his samurai pants um which is probably not the best choice scene as the film was originally the film's big battle scene at the end was originally going to be shot at the end of summer which wouldn't cause a problem unfortunately due to the delays the film the short scene was actually shot in february in near freezing temperatures so mifune would later say that it was never been so cold in his life when shooting those scenes yeah he's uh, he's he's sort of half armored but half naked at the same time in some 
but again, again, showing, you know, there's, there's reasons for that. You know, he's showing he is both. Well, he's not really a samurai, is he? But he, he sort of becomes one. And and but you know, he's a low half. He is a farmer. That's where he comes from. He has this. The first half of the film is not much happens. It's the gathering of the guard. It's the gathering of the samurai. It's um, it's just showing us what all these characters are like, and then the sort of the the, the villagers don't like them, and then Mafune's character makes sure that they do get together. Um, and and it's his big speech near the end of the first half of the film, which really sort of gets everything going um he's absolutely crucial to making that first sort of two hours maybe hour, hour and a half two hours whatever it is um it's it, it, he, he's the one that tie, ties it all together yeah and i mean it's it's surprisingly the fact that when it, so much, the film takes its time to introduce these characters and develop the scene and 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 the plot it never rushes uh, what we're going to get through and which at the same time i mean any fool can make a long movie but here with kurosawa he's making a long and engrossing film and Ooh. the fact that he was he basically got into so many clashes with the studio toho over the production they tried to close it down at least twice he was four times over the the shooting um, sort of time because he basically they wanted it done done within a few months and he basically spread out the whole shooting schedule over a year and it also came like more than the studio who originally wanted to spend and every time that they would close it down Kurosawa basically just said that you know he went out fishing and realized he just basically felt that you know the studio had invested so much money in the film at this point there was gonna be no way they were going to close the film down yeah, and and of course <clears throat> the other thing is is that he edited it on set so if he did it a more traditional way it could have been another year before it came <laughs> out so so he was doing them a favor by basically you know, and this shot this shocked a lot of the act you know this wasn't the way that films were made um he's he's he at the time is quite unique in in doing that um so yeah, but I guess I guess I guess he was playing the system, and he and he had the you know he had he had people like Ozu behind who were who were also telling the studio no let this happen, and of course he had he had the success of of the film he made two films ago Rashomon, which had been a huge international success. So he had he had that kudos which enabled him to keep going. He wasn't like some of the other directors we talked about who maybe. Um, didn't quite have the power to do the things they wanted and never worked again. Um, thinking of uh, the guy that did Kike Waidan and, and like <laughs> films like that, which um, which basically broke a studio, um, Kurosawa, even at this fairly early time in his successful part of his career, still seemed to have the power to keep getting that film being made. I mean, would you draw comparisons to this and Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now? I mean, both are epic films with directors who have a vision, and obviously were one features Coppola going mad in the jungle. Um, here, Kurosawa takes a very sort of laid back and methodical approach that of just basically banking on playing the studio at their own game. I, th- I, th- I think they're very different things. I think I think one is one is a, a glorious accident waiting to happen. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, obviously, obviously, no film, even, even the worst film, is, is 
is planned. There's very few films which are literally thrown together. It might just look like that at the end. But this is this this is this is this is a guy who knows what he's got in. You know, this is this is a guy playing poker, isn't it? This is a guy that that knows what he's got in the can. He knows he's got enough people behind him. I mean, the the excitement amongst the Japanese audience for this film was also palpable all, all those things i was talking about about like, like the end of the american occupation the fact that they're going to have a new samurai film the fact it's why this guy kurosawa who, who got a lot of kudos this was you know he he had all the cards and you're right once they've invested so much what are they going to do <laughs> not not make it um and, and 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 i guess i guess it paid off because it, it was it was a success a huge success at home and pretty a pretty good success abroad as well not not just amongst um you know the the the, the film festival type cricket critics but it, you know it got a proper it was only the second japanese film i think to get a proper release in the states so let's obviously just look at the first half of this this film the uh, part one as um as kurosawa calls it and this is really just the drawing of of the group and already we see you throughout this film with there's a lot of traits and and tropes that are seen in this first half alone that are now sort of staples of modern action cinema i mean the idea that you're going to bring a group of guys together to go and do a job so in this case it's the samurai who are coming together being brought together with the task of defending the village from the bandits um we also get to see the introduction of the leader of our samurai takashi uh, shimura's kenbei who's initially shown having his top knot shaved off um, before he goes to rescue a, a young boy. And this itself, I mean, it's that, that trope of you introduce the hero who's just doing some mundane thing that's not even related to the plot, and certainly we get that here with his introduction. And each of the samurai get their own unique introduction. I mean, obviously, Mifune's uh, Chiros is completely different in the fact that He's this sort of, you know, temperamental rogue. He's very brash and makes all these sort of big claims. He carries this huge sword with him that's like almost as long as he is. It sort of thing that would put Final Fantasy to shame. And he's got all these sort of claims about his legacy as a samurai. And every time he tries to prove something, it's normally there's some detail that he's missed out or overlooked such as he produces this scroll which is supposed to mark out his legacy as a samurai and it's like you know you would just it says here you're a young boy this isn't your scroll yeah. at all <laughs> it's all proves he's 13 years old yeah. <laughs> and he's not 13 years old <laughs> um and yeah he just then goes off in one of his, his sort of like tantrum <laughs> moments and goes and breaks things and sleeps in the sty um at the same time we also have the other Iteo Kimura who uh, plays uh, Kachiro who becomes kind of like a, a disciple of Kenbei um, so it's kind of interesting him being obviously the youngest of the party just the him wanting to follow the samurai path of take on an apprenticeship who's an interesting addition to the group and we obviously have other sort of fighters such as you know like um, Heihachi who's more of a woodcutter than a samurai it's just like you know again another sort of big big figure and i think this is what i love about about this film is the fact that these aren't just stoic samurais these are real they feel like real people i mean i'm I mean, a couple a couple of them are but 
the, on the whole, they're all individuals. Um, you know, they're, they're all very different. I mean, you mentioned um, Katsushiro, the, the young, the young sort of wealthy son who, who gets taken on as a as a disciple to um, Kanbei. Um, you know, and he he ends up carrying the, the romantic subplot later on. You know, it, you know, he's he's a tertiary character, but he's absolutely vital to the plot. Um, you have another guy um, who cracks jokes all the time um, to keep, keep 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 their spirits up. They're all they're all well drawn. They've all got a backstory. So, yeah, but so, some take a bigger part in the plot than others. But you wouldn't say it's three guys and four other guys, which can quite often happen in this kind of film. You know. The, how often is it that, that this kind of get the gang together film is that four of the people are just there for comic relief or for red shirtness? You know, <laughs> I feel I, I feel they're all um, they're all valid characters, and we'll all we'll all take different different interest in them. And, and whilst only sort of maybe three or four of them really really sort of drive the plot forward, um, they're all worth spending time with. Yeah, for sure. And while the film takes a a good time to obviously bring the group together and it's kind of interesting it's good to see that each of these characters they're not just like just like instantly sort of picked up and thrown into this group they give them time to sort of breathe for them to really sort of establish their character and certainly we've got uh with uh, one of the samurai he doesn't initially join he's just there just to test his skills um i think it's a uh, kaizu Who's uh, mm, just the, the the super swordsman fellow? Yeah, who's doing more uh, traditional? The world shortest, yeah, the world shortest sword fight he has <laughs> quite early on in the. You film. say that, but I mean, this is how sword fights went down uh, no, between the samurai. It was absolutely. one or two blows. It's as, as we talked about in in our Lone Wolf and Cub episode. You know, these 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 are deadly weapons, and and you don't go twing 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 like you see in. I don't know Robin Hood films yeah. and things like that. You know, one slice through, done. And um, it's a brilliant thing. It's almost done like it, it looks at a minute like you're just watching a photograph, a still, and then it just goes and and, and he's won the battle because he's um, he is supreme at that that skill. Yeah, I mean, it, this is what always amused me when you had like the swashbuckling first, you know, like the Errol Flynn movies and and that. I mean, obviously with Errol Flynn, that it's the use of rapier. It's a more mm, fencing a sort of sword. Yeah. Um, but even, I mean, when you compare it to like the katana, which obviously the the favorite weapon, the samurai, which is like a push pull motion. So it's really just designed for removing limbs and ending things rather quickly. Uh, but even when we look at like those sort of swashbuckling things, even back in the day, they wouldn't have been faffing around with the, you know, the you know Princess Bride sort of like back and forth. It would have just been, you know, if you had an opportunity to kick him in the ghoulies, then you probably would have took that. It was a different style of ending the fight quicker. Uh, and, and, and and you're just as likely to die of septicemia as you are of a fatal blow. And also one guy's an archer, isn't he? I mean yes. they're, they're, they're not all they're not all swordsmen. Go they are they are they are soldiers from an army. Um you know, they, they currently they currently they're all without a Diamo, without a, without a, a lord to follow at the moment. They're, they're Ronin, that's the word, isn't Ronin, it? Ronin, yeah. They're sort of masterless samurai, but they are they are ex-soldiers, and soldiers aren't all swordsmen, even even during this period of of Japanese history. So it was interesting that one guy one guy is an archer, and indeed seems to be the um, 
seems to be one of the main guys for doing the strategy. That's right. He's more of a uh, strategist. And it's it's funny when you say, like, oh, we're getting seven samurai. You assume that seven guys with samurai swords. But no, we just we do have him. And he's obviously not um, an archer, as you said already. And it certainly adds a, a cinematic quality to the film. Uh, to have, a, have an archer just rather than just sword play. And I think it's really interesting. And it's also good when we, as we get to the end of this first act, that they arrive at the village and there's this sense of untrust. These farmers are sent for samurai and now samurai have arrived in the village. So they still untrust them because they feel that they're going to be on perhaps like act in the same way that the bandits have. And it leads to one of the farmers basically cutting his daughter's hair so she can masquerade as being a boy uh, so that, you know, it protects her from these lustful samurai. That trope again. Yeah. Let's get a pretty girl to cut her hair short and everyone will think that she's a boy, (laughs) which, which, which is one of the least successful um, implementations of that trope ever. (laughs) And yeah. And I mean, it, in many ways, I mean, it obviously gives, you know, as you said, it gives us that um, wonderful Mifune speech, which is sort of like there. It sort of brings them brings them together because, as you said already, with his character, he's not a samurai; he's a farmer's son, and mm. he just obviously want inspired to be a samurai. And but by him being essentially having a foot in both worlds, he's able to sort of be the one to bring them together finally, and to sort of start creating this this trust. Of course, because what we what we have to what that, where that comes from is actually these villagers may be not quite as naive and innocent as the first hour or so of the film made out. They've clearly killed samurai and hoarded their armor and their weapons, and that causes great upset to the to the main six samurai because they go, "Oh my God, these guys these guys have killed our our, our comrades in arms or other people of our social class." You know, which, whichever side of of a particular battle you might be on, they are, they're seeing a samurai as a as an honourable job. It's quite a high I don't, I don't know what quite the word is, but let's call it a high caste job. Um, and and they're quite upset. And and then as you say, Mafune's speech says, "Hang on a fucking minute, <laughs> you you guys, you know." everything that's wrong with this place is down to the the feudal system and you're absolutely part of that and yes these guys have have done things to protect themselves but it's all your fault at which point the mood just flip-flops doesn't it and it becomes shameful rather than angry which then kind of suddenly just changes the mood and suddenly everyone starts working together yeah the farmers are, are trained to use bamboo spears and uh to essentially come together as a, a unit rather than sort of just a group of farmers. So it really sort of plays into the final act. Because, I mean, there's obviously that misunderstanding that you're going to have the Seven Samurai and you're going to basically do all the heavy lifting. It's really not the case. The Seven Samurai are just basically there just to unite everybody together and to become this, like, one opposing force to these bandits who are going to, going to come up. Yeah. And it's... That combined with like the strategy that the samurai bring with them is going to be obviously what uh, helps win them out the day here. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, just, it's a very important point actually. You know, this isn't seven guys against forty bandits. This is seven guys leading a village to their own salvation against the forty bandits. Um, well, I keep thinking of Alibaba and the forty thieves when I say that, but um, <laughs> they, they mention forty bandits and they count them down as they <laughs> as they get killed later on, but. 
yeah this this is this is again this kind of leads into you know the stuff i was talking about earlier this is this is about the people of japan from all all stations in life getting together and 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 working together there's there's definitely a subtext of that because i'm pretty certain in other sorts of films like this i've seen you know the, the seven would normally stand alone and and then they'd get a nice celebratory meal at the end whereas this time you know the, the, these villagers they live with them they fight with them they eat with them they die with them it, it's 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 an all for one one for all kind of thing mixing my um uh cinematographic fighting forces hmm. <laughs> um yeah so I mean, obviously when we get into part two part two is more action heavy side of things and it's Rather than being the one big battle, which I kind of expected it to be, that they were going to have all these uh, like bandits turn up and mass, and it was going to be like this big siege sort of sequence. Instead, what we get is a series of skirmishes against the bandits' village, um, and then the bandits sort of giving the ret- retaliation attack. And I mean, it has to be said that while these are honourable samurai, their methods are perhaps not the most honourable, as they're during the skirmish, they basically burn down a, a hut and then attack the bandits as they flee out, which is probably not the most honourable way of going about things. No, and you know, in one section, they they capture they the three come, they kill two, they torture one for information, then kill him anyway. Um, yeah, the, it's it's not an, it's not the honour that maybe we're expecting from you know we hear about the samurai code and. And, and all those, all those kind of um, platitudes from other films, and and these these guys get down dirty, and they 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 take what advantages they can. If it so happens that people are running away from them, they're not gonna let them come back fight another day if they can help it. And uh, yeah, they fight dirty when they need to. Yes, it um, and it f- brings to mind. I mean, obviously, Thirteen Assassins, which. It's essentially just it's just um, Mike's take on Seven Samurai, so like just double the number. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much inspired. By when this. you have that training sort of sequence, and it's sort of like a, if you lose your sword, pick up a rock, and that's basically the sort of dirty sort of fighting that we see here. It's all about you know separate them out and then basically gang up on them and poke them to death with bamboo spears. But yeah, I mean, when we obviously get into that that sort of final sort of battle sequence we got the rain and the mud and everything else coming down it's just a really cinematic sort of sequence to go to even if it's perhaps not going as hard with the action as we'd obviously see with later um efforts which would obviously be more sort of focused on emphasizing the action not have this sort of like drawn out battle and yeah. uh, and, and such so it's 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 not as stylized as maybe some of those later films as well in terms of the action that's right and what and, and and the other thing is that Kurosawa, again, this was unique for the time. The, these these those sequences he filmed with multiple cameras on at the same time, because he knew he wouldn't be able to repeat them. That, that there's loads of moving pieces going on here. There's horses. There's people running around. It's pissing down with rain. <laughs> there's mud everywhere. So he 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 shot all those sequences with multi cameras at the same time, which is probably 
de rigueur now that's what everyone does it wasn't done at the time and that that added to the cost of the film that added you know that and then the and the and the actors hadn't really seen this before this was this is groundbreaking stuff technically and it pays off because you get in it it's you know, I think we've mentioned this is a black and white film, yeah, and 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 a lot of it is stuff moving around, and there's rain. It's quite obscured, and and people are in their arm, and you can't always recognise them. And there's horses running around, but you still get, you know, you get the sense of the was it the, the fog of war kind of thing, <laughs> but you also still know kind of what's going on. It, it it's really masterfully done because it could be a great big mess, and it isn't. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things which are now just standard uh, sort of action cinema affair, and the film is in so many ways ahead of its time, and uh, but at the same time still got a very sort of traditional sort of style to it. Um, so it's interesting to see the blend in there, and I mean, even just from the shooting aspects you said already, I mean, there's multiple camera units being filmed here. We've obviously got the main sort of camera, which is sort of set up in, like, the most orthodox shooting position then he's using another camera for like the quick shots and then the third camera is like the gorilla unit to basically like shooting what they can and mm. even in the less sort of action heavy films that he would do after this it was still a method that he carried across as he just found it a more efficient way of shooting and let's not also forget i mean this he, he's here using telephoto lenses which are really rare in 1954 it's not the sort of thing mm. that you can just go down to your storage fit you know and get a bunch of it's it certainly hadn't been used in japanese cinema before you know it's this is this is so yeah there's there's so many technical and a lot of the the, the articles you read and the and the and the youtube video analysis is that you can find are obsessed with the technical side of things with what he's bought and i guess that's why he's so inspiring to other filmmakers yeah, it, it it it's how it's the how he does it is almost as important as what he's done. Yeah, it's that hands-on method they had. I mean, you mentioned already he was editing on set, and this would earn him a reputation as being the world's greatest editor, according to the crew. And <laughs> he would basically shoot during the day, edit at night, and compared to most other directors at the time who would wrap production and then spend like several months with the with the editor trying to assemble it into some sort of coherent piece and when you i mean we're shooting on film here this isn't like you're shooting on digital where it's really easy to edit stuff it's basically you're hanging up reels of film and trying to tape it all together and and that's just not it's still not the normal way of doing things i mean it, it's quite unusual for the director to be the editor um usually the editor is someone who in in that in that post-filming, post-shooting block, we normally work with the director as as a, like a you think of the director as a composer, a, a conductor, and and sorry, you pick, think of the um, director as the composer and the editor as as the conductor. He brings all these millions of feet of film together and then spends months putting it together under the directors. And, and usually the editor has to be sort of in simpatico with with the director. But this is a guy who's doing it himself. I'm not just doing it himself. He's doing it on set at that time every night those the shots we've done today he's, he's getting them in the not just in the cam but he's getting them ready for the film the vision of his film is is well it's great it's, it's astonishing and even more astonishing that this is in 1954 in a in a film industry which has been under severe restrictions for a long time 
Yeah. Um, now, when it obviously comes to Kurosawa's work, I mean, is Seven Samurai the best starting point for his for his filmography, or do you think there's other films which are sort of more accessible that um, are better to start with? Because I mean, obviously, the length of Seven Samurai makes it an intimidating watch, and kind of makes me wish that they had like a make mini series button when you bought the DVD. <laughs> it sort of like breaks it up into sizable chunks for you. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because this is his—I called it before, like his magnum opus. This is this is as good as he gets. Now, it made lots of other films which are really, 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 really good. Um, but I think the length will put off somebody wanting to to jump into his film, and 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 I I would go somewhere else. I would go with Rashomon. Okay, it's, it's another another collaboration with Toshiro Mifune. Um. Uh, it's it's a it's it's a period it's a period crime thriller, <laughs> um, which again has in, uh, inspired so many other movies and movie makers. You know, it tells the same story four times from four different points of view. Um, it's still got those those strange Japanese things that we don't necessarily understand, like um samurais and women's makeup with those white faces and those great big fake eyebrows up you know there's a lot of stuff going on here that will be alien to people but that story because it is the same story told four times from different points of view that's that's something we understand i mean he he's he's adapting somebody's um you know he he didn't he didn't invent the, the four different views of the story that that's from the source novel but um I think that's to me that's 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 an easier film to grasp and get into, and it's not as um, it's not as lengthy as this, uh, and and you get a bit of Toshiro Mifune at the same time. Um, but there are others. <laughs> um, I'm sure. I know. What would you pick? Jimbo for myself. Uh, another film that's been remade multiple times, and Mifune is mm. a, a samurai who found to find two. Opposing families like fighting over a gambling racket and basically decides to play them off against each other um, as this sort of like grey figure. And I mean, this is a film that was remade as The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly by uh, Sergio Leone. It was remade in the 90s as Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis in a more forgettable effort. <laughs> but the fact it's uh, there, and I mean, it's another classic Mifune performance here, is you know, just the most the coolest samurai on film uh but i would say it's a because of it, it's got more of an action more of the action beats to it and um it's a little it's shorter obviously and it's got a little quicker pace to it i think it's a it's a good sort of starting point before you start tackling the big ones of the other filmography i mean at the same time I mean, you can obviously start with seven samurai it's just its length is uh makes it more of a a, a time consuming effort than than starting something smaller, so yeah. I mean, I mean, the other one, I guess, is is one of his last films, if not his last film. I can't remember. No, no, it's not his last film. I remember his last film is now. Um, Ran, um, is 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 from the. When did he make that? I want to say in the eighties. Um, 
yeah, 85, um, towards the end of his career. But that's that's 160 odd minutes long. <laughs> you know that that's not. But but of course, you, you know, people know the story of King Lear. Um, so it, it, it's quite easy to for for a Westerner to, to to kind of understand what's going on. I remember Ran. Ran was the, probably the first one I saw because I remember it would have been film 85. Barry Norman went on about that bloody that's film like every it. week it felt like for a year and um, um and that probably that's probably the first time i would have been aware of japanese cinema at all um and that 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 and that's a great looking film but um i don't know yeah possibly has has, has got the same issues with seven samurai for the first time again of course if you're quite happy watching a three three and a half hour film go straight to seven samurai but there might be other Chances are we've got nothing but time on your hands, <laughs> so it's a good time to watch this. And, 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 and Lawrence Arabia. And, and, but it is, you know, as you know, this isn't the only film of, of the time which has got an intermission. There's plenty of films with intermissions at the time, but it does have that intermission, and that and that point of intermission is quite natural. You know, you that they are they're not two separate films; they're absolutely connected to the whole as a whole. But it gives you a chance to take stock, get a cup of tea popcorn whatever it is you're going to do and then get ready for the more action heavy second half it feels interestingly natural as opposed to oh well we've got two hours into this let's have a break because <laughs> it, just, it just feels that it's at the right time i don't think it's exactly halfway through i can't remember um but yes on my i had the bfi dvd is, is what i've got so it, it kept all five minutes in very nice <laughs> Um, is there anything else you want to discuss in this one? I, I I don't think so. I think we could, I think we could easily do a lot more. Um, but I think we've, I think we'll just be covering the same ground again, just saying how fantastic this is, how fantastic that is. Um, but let's, you know, this this is a film by an acknowledged master it's not just you and me saying this you know, the the internet and the libraries are full of other people saying similar things to what we've been saying um and all i could say is they're not wrong it's 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 an amazing film um and i i think worthy of our 50th definitely, episode definitely so for viewing if you obviously like seven samurai what would you pair with it well, I kind of already yeah. gone over one of them. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's, 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 I was, I was going to choose Rashomon, um, so, so I, I won't I won't talk any more about that. Um, what I will say is that I think it's important to know that a lot of the films that we've mentioned um, of Kurosawa's Rashomon, um, Dojimbo, um, Throne of Blood, he didn't just work in that in the um, Jidageki genre those those period films um my favorite um kurosawa film is one that you mentioned quite early on i think when you were talking about what's on the bfi okay um is high and low which is a police procedural um Hmm. hilariously based on an ed mcbain book (laughs) fairly loosely um i watched this a couple of years ago um, and funny enough, Toshiro Mifune is the lead in it as well. <laughs> but um, it's a modern-day police thriller um, involving a, I think it's a kidnapping, and there's a lot of tension when they're waiting for people to phone and trace the call. And 
all that stuff goes. And, and, but it just shows that Kurosawa was far more than just a creator of, of period samurai films. Um, he, he had the full gamut of abilities to put together all sorts of films. He didn't do it enough for my liking, and, and, and there's obviously a lot of lesser films in his, his catalogue which, which are not look, looked as highly upon. But I think High and Low is, is very well regarded, and yeah, if you wanted to have a, a look at Kurosawa, but a different sort of Kurosawa, I'd go for that. So yeah, High and Low and, and um, Rashomon are probably the, the two I would go with. How about yourself? Uh, for myself, it's uh, pretty much a little more uh, modern with my picks. Obviously, I think mentioned already 13 Assassins from Takashi Miike. I think mm-hmm. it pairs really well with this, and obviously Yojimbo if you want to stay more with Kurosawa. Um, the other one I'm going to throw in is a bit of a wild card, and that's a 2004 anime series called Samurai 7, uh, which is kind of like a steampunk updating of uh, Seven Samurai, and uh, set in this sort of futuristic world where the bandits are still terrorizing the villagers, but they're doing so in a giant, ro- in giant robot mecha. So now the uh, villagers have to go ahead to round up... Uh, these the the title seven samurai to uh, battle it and it's kind of interesting the fact that uh, when you look at like Mifune's character who's now like a giant cyborg, uh, but it still has all the sort of traits like he mistakenly tries to pass off his legacy with the wrong scrolls and things like that and the fact that every time he charges into a scene things just break constantly. It's um it's a really fun sort of light-hearted uh, series and nothing too heavy and it's got some fun action beats and even better still you can find it on Netflix at the minute so it's easy to uh, get hold of and so. all right and, and and if you're going to do that I'm also going to suggest watch Pixar's A Bug's Life because although although <laughs> sorry watch A Bug's Life is then compared to Samurai <laughs> although, 7 although I don't even know if we're allowed to watch it anymore because Kevin Spacey's the bad guy isn't he but hopefully we can see beyond that um but it is the seven samurai in animated bugs um so if, if you want to if you want to just get in touch with what the story's about watch your bugs life and then move on to the um the, the 1954 classic <laughs> i can't wait to see like the parents thinks it's like hey little timmy you know that bugs life movie you really like we're going to show you the live action version and it's three and a half hours long <laughs> but you know it's either that or do your homework <laughs> the kid goes back to school like more like culture than he was when he left well if they, if, they, if anything good comes out of out of this and more cultured children I'm all for that so. but uh, that obviously brings us to the end of our 50th episode of the Asian Cinema Asian Cinema Film Club um, I just really want to just really thank everyone for listening and, and supporting the the show over the last two and a bit years that we've obviously been doing it it's been an absolute delight to do it and to see the response that we've got and to you know make the connections that we've obviously done through doing it and getting to talk to people like uh, Usumimi over at uh, Animus Doja podcast or the guys over at the Blade Licking Thieves uh, Grant the Heat and Zen it's just been such a welcoming community and even on just on like a social media stance and we talked to like uh, Beth Ann and the people the folks over at like Asian Cinema Takeout who we just have been so good in obviously letting us uh, plug the show over there and it's um, for a show that just started off as just myself and you Stephen we grew from there we obviously 
David Brooke came and joined us to write about movies. We've had Steph come and made us feel really old and talking about Korean, Korean pop culture. <laughs> so I, d- I never thought that um, we would obviously end up in the place we have and it's now just an exciting journey to see what happens to the next 50 and the films we choose to obviously cover and uh, along the way. It's of course we've only technically done forty nine films <laughs> in our fifty episodes because we had a we had a draft episode, didn't we? So we've still got to hit our fiftieth film. Um, although then again, you could say we had fifty other films when we did our top fifty. <laughs> we did a double feature because we did um, we did we did two Tetsuo movies. So the same film twice <laughs> but yeah no it's been it's been an interesting ride when you know when we when we when you asked me to continue on um i wondered if we were going to make it to 10 episodes mostly me rather than you um so i'm impressed at myself for keeping it going and it's been really good you know, we've had some really exciting guests on some really interesting people some of them incredibly knowledgeable some of them almost first first timers you know, like um, uh, once upon a time in China, two episodes. You know, we 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 got somebody on board that maybe wasn't hugely knowledgeable about Choi Hart movies, and that's part of the thing is to get people interested, to get people to look outside of their their normal cinematic boundaries. I never um, thought that we'd get get uh, Zoe Zilba for a shotgun to sit through. But three and a half hours of um, romantic melodrama, either. But when we looked at the classic, I, I have I have to say that's almost on my CV that we we not <laughs> only got, I, but not only that I got you and Zoe to watch the classic, but that you both went and bloody enjoyed it. <laughs> the, the classic was probably one of our biggest surprises of of this this block of fifty. I when it was proposed that we obviously look at this romantic melodrama that goes on for hours and goes in weird and wonderful directions for no apparent reason it was um i just didn't think that uh it would be as enjoyable as ours. and i mean obviously for the show i've went back and looked at chunking express another film on my cinema shame pile for a while and much like this film it's been great to obviously finally cross off and not only just watch films for the first time but also to discuss films and even when we've discussed on the show and then you'd go on like Facebook and, and Twitter and that and you'd have one of the, have one of our listeners uh, like just post some their own thoughts on the show and just sort of like continue the discussion going. It's just been been so fascinating on that. And even just like the recommendations we have through for things to check out, it's it just feels like uh it just feels like not just ourselves making it, but just like this this whole community effort which is mm. what you always wanted of just for a show that started off just wanting to just be an introduction to Asian cinema, the fact that we've not only achieved that goal, but have, you know, managed to create a little community um, between ourselves and uh, you guys, our listeners, has just been has been wonderful. So thank you all for uh, supporting the show, and hope hopefully you continue to uh, support us over the uh, the coming episodes as we uh, battle on now for a hundred. Well, let's say seventy-five. Let's <laughs> <laughs> now we'll do a hundred with uh, with our with our new schedule. A hundred should be easy. In fact, the challenge is sometimes going to be deciding which film to choose. So it's all very exciting when the community also put things together, which obviously you know that that drew us to um, a touch of sin a few weeks ago, which I think is a film probably both of us would have carried on avoiding if it even if it hadn't been mentioned. Um, 
only thing, the only issue I have is that we've only done, I think, one Thai film in the in the fifty. I can't, and that was back in episode three. So we need to sort that out. Yes, and we need Tears to, of the Black Tiger. And we need to do more mainland Chinese because, again, I think we've only done one, and that was only a few weeks. That was Touch of Sin. Yes. So um, there's a whole, there's two whole industries we've barely touched, and then you know we, we'll probably try and look at something Cambodian or Vietnamese, or maybe even slide into South Asia. There's a couple of Indian films I wouldn't mind sneaking on. Um, you know, they will need a um, intermission, but <laughs> but they're made that way, so that's okay. Um, so yeah, I just I just think it's it's really exciting that that we've managed to get this far, especially with me involved, who's not a stayer of these things. And I just really love it that we've got people interested. And I'm really excited about the way I can get you to watch things that you know we're we're very different characters in terms of our. Not 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 completely, but you know, you 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 are. Uh, we come from different. Fact- we come from different entry points in there. Where obviously you we- you came through classy cinema, and I came through <laughs> trashy. I wasn't cinema. going to. I wasn't <laughs> going to say that, but you know, you you have you have of you know you've have a long standing interest in cult cinema, um, and and therefore sort of Hong Kong cinema and and some of the more extreme side of Japanese cinemas where you're coming from, whereas I'm 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 coming from uh, yeah right, the more highbrow area. But I think we we. There have been a few episodes where we violently disagreed on the quality of the film, like two or three times. Um, it's but been, on the whole, it has been surprising. Like when you, and I think this again was always the the key thing when it came to sort of the foundation. I think the fact that we come from different sides of it means that we get to look at a different variety of films, and we probably mm. come if we're both look. As I say, if we're both approaching this as we're both sort of like fans of highbrow cinema, we're both fans of like more, you know, the more action court side of cinema. I think it we wouldn't have had such a diverse pro- viewing program that we've obviously had over this fifty episodes, and I think that's what's always made it interesting. It's never been is it's constantly like finding new things, exposing things that you wouldn't otherwise have watched, and um, that's that's certainly one of the biggest draws of it. It's just like you know, pushing your taste out there and trying new things and uh, revisiting things with perhaps a different slant. So. Yep, fantastic. That's um. Here's to the next fifty. Yeah. Well, thank you as always for you, you the folks listening. If you've obviously enjoyed what you've uh, been hearing, make sure you do hit the like and subscribe buttons and leave us a review. We do uh, appreciate uh, hearing the feedback from you guys, and it helps raise the profile of the show as well. You can also get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at at AC Film Club. We're also on Instagram as well. And you can check out our full archive of episodes along with all the fun bits of writing, the mixtapes, and everything else at asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. Um, I also have to say thank you to our sponsor, Yes Please Vintage. Uh, check them out at, at uh, yespleasevintage.com um, as well. So thank you uh, to them. And uh, we will be back next time with something rather special. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Um, so hopefully uh, you can join us for that. And uh, as I said, uh, thank you to my co-host Stephen, and um, thank you once again to you, our listening listeners, for uh, supporting the show. And uh, onwards and upwards. But Keep on listening, listeners. <laughs> do what you do best. <laughs> and wash those damn hands. Hey! Hey!
This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.